Church, you sound good today. Man, amen. Amen. You sound good? You look good? Now, let me qualify that just a little bit. No, this is, this is completely related to the message. You may remember that old Western movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Unfortunately, a lot of us, if we've been around the church long enough, can see that sometimes that fits us. I mean, it just does. That's the way it is. Um, I was brought to faith at Lawndale Baptist Church in Greensboro. And I've shared that story before, but we were there. We visited that church one Sunday. Um, I remember hearing the noise of pages of the Bible being turned, and I'd never heard that before in a church. I'd never heard people actually make a noise with their pages when the pastor said, take your Bibles and open them up. And that was impactful to me. Um, I'd been raised in church, but I didn't know the Lord. But the thing also that really compelled us to go back to that church, and I've shared this, was the way that they loved Brad. They just, you know, I mean, that was just, that lady didn't know my son. She didn't, you know, Judy just loved him. Never, ever diminish the importance of how you love those children when a parent drops them off at the door over there, okay? Never diminish the kingdom significance of that work. We went back to that church because of the way they loved our son, okay? And so, a couple of years later, that church went through the ugliest church split that I've ever seen. And I'd never really seen one, but I was right up in the middle of that one, okay? I mean, the pastor had to go in in the middle of the night to get his stuff out of his office for fear, it was, And I had just come back from a mission trip to South Korea and seen the outpouring of God's Spirit in a way that I had never seen before. It was amazing to see the beauty and the goodness of the church there and then to come back and see it in all of its ugliness, honestly, just in its ugliness. And it was in that context that God called me out of a career in the corporate world into the ministry. You've got to be kidding me. But, but he did. You know, he did. And so too often the image that we and even more, unfortunately, the public sees of the church is, is not that good, right? I mean, there was a headline in a, in a, in a paper in Florida last week, okay, about a, a Baptist church there in Florida who this, just this past Friday night, in fact, I saw this on Saturday, um, 150 to 200, the number's a little unclear, Members of that church got an email from their board of trustees in that church that their names had been removed from the church role because of an ongoing dispute, if you will, an ongoing argument um, with the pastor and the leadership team about financial issues, accountability. It's a new pastor in that church. He's been there about a year. They say he's controlling. Others say he's not. And, and the quote in this newspaper was, a venerable downtown religious landmark is in full-out civil war after a year of sporadic confrontations about financial accountability and transparency. So that's the public image in that particular town of a large downtown Baptist church. In our own state, just last week, um, a a church, a congregation was shaken to its core when its pastor was charged with second-degree sexual molestation for downloading pornography onto his computer. Um, 
the community sees that. They, they see that. They see the church. According to a survey that was released last September, religious leaders in America have less of a trust factor than do journalists, police officers, and military officers. On a scale ranging from none of the time to all of the time, 65% of Americans believe that religious leaders act unethically some of the time, compared to just 52% for police officers, 51% for journalists, and 42% for military leaders. Now, this is a message, this, this is one of those messages that I am absolutely excited to be able to preach because lots of times we as we're working through scriptures working through books and chapters and verses we come to these verses where there's a lot of thou shalt not you know there's a lot of um there's a lot of word there for us about what we're not to do and it it kind of holds us up in the mirror and and the image is ugly that's not the case today that's not the case we as the church and the community around us needs to see the beauty of Jesus' bride. We need to see the beauty of the church. We need to see her in all of her splendor, in all of her glory. We need to see her as we are, which is this beautiful, redeemed bride of Christ. We need to see her as global. We need to see her as diverse. We need to see her filled with worship and praise. For the one who has redeemed her. And that's what we see in Revelation 7. So take your Bible and let's look at it for just a second. Revelation chapter 7. Last week we we worked our way through the first portion of this chapter. Down through verse 7. And we saw this. The the question we asked last week. And the picture we see in these first seven verses. Of of those who who are sealed. And those who are safe. And, and we saw last week that this picture of sealing, the, these who are sealed is a picture of ownership, that we belong to God. We are His. He owns us. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us with a price. And not only is it a symbol of ownership, but it's a symbol of purpose. Those who are sealed with Him are His servants. That's what we're called to do is to serve Him. And remember, we, we just kind of contrasted it with the mark of the beast. Those who are loyal to the beast... And to the rebels against God, live a certain way. And those who are servants of God and sealed by Him and loyal to Him, live a certain way. And the question ends in there, well, who can stand in in the end of chapter 6? This great day of wrath has come and it says, who can stand? And the answer to that is seen in today's passage. And we talked about the 144,000 and all the differences in opinion and stuff on that. But here's the point with that 144,000 and I think with the throng that we see today. God is faithful to keep his covenant promises to his people and he will clothe us in the righteousness of Christ and we will be before him and with him forever. That's the promise. That's the promise that we have here. And so let's look at the text. Let's, let's pick up the reading together. I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 9. And remember, one of the things that helps us, helps me, and I think it's a helpful 
principle, if you will, of interpretation in the book of Revelation is lots of times we saw this earlier when John was was allowed into heaven through this spiritual doorway, if you will. His spirit enabled him to see into the very presence of heaven. And remember, he sees certain things, and then at times he'll see something and hear something else. Or he'll hear something and turn to see it and see something else. Earlier, he heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turned and he saw what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Well, the same thing happens here. He hears about these 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. And it starts in verse 9. And after this, I looked. So he heard one thing and he looks. And this is what he sees. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Well, then one of the elders addressed me. So I love these little interludes in here where John is just enraptured by this vision. And then all of a sudden he, he kind of breaks away and gives us a play by play. All right. Well, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and and from where have they come? And John is like, you're asking me? <laughs> he said, let me ask you. <laughs> Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, we'll look at that. Let's, let's just look at that section of it, and then we'll come back and read the last of it as we get to the last point of the sermon. These who are standing and saved. That's the answer in chapter 6. Who can stand? Well, it's here. It's these. It's, 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 I think it's us. I think it's a picture of us. And, and here's the, the points I want us to see out of this, okay? This is, we have sung this morning about the mission that God gives us, the call that God has given us. We might not have recognized it explicitly, but just remember, the last thing that someone says to someone before they leave or sometimes at the end of their life, that's a, that's a precious word, right? I mean, that's, that's an important word we need to pay attention to. Well, Jesus' last words to his disciples were, all, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That was that commission. That was that mandate. And so this is a, this is a missional message. This is a, a church message. This is a message of what will be and, in a sense, what is now. Who are we as the redeemed of Christ? What are we as the redeemed of Christ? Notice that this gospel will glow, will go globally. It will go globally. And I didn't put this in the sermon notes, but in my own notes, I have will capitalized, all caps. It will go globally. All right? It will. It's a fulfillment all the way back from the promise that God gave to this old man in Genesis named Abraham. The one who had no children. The one who was way past the age of fathering children, married to a woman who's way past the age of being the mother of one. By the way, happy Mother's Day. 
And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And then he says in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families. Over in Revelation 22, when we get to the end, there's going to be this tree of life. And the fruit from that tree is going to bring healing to the nations. So we've got families and nations. Remember Genesis 11? When the plans of men all united together under one language was let's build a tower to the heavens and exalt ourselves. God had other plans, right? It says in Genesis 11, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language on all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So there's this great dispersal in Genesis 11, and disunity, and different languages, and different places, and God just begins to providentially put us. Why are we born here? Why are we here? You ever think about that? Why do we live here in North Carolina and not in the northeastern corner of Afghanistan? Why do we live here and not in the middle of India? God's purposes, his providence, his sovereignty, he puts us where he chooses, but he puts us there for the reason. And what we see breaking apart and dispersing in Genesis 11, we see being brought back together in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We see the Holy Spirit come, speaking in different tongues so that they heard what all the disciples were saying. They heard the gospel in their own language. God's reversing it there. And notice what will be. There are nations and tribes and peoples and languages. And these terminologies, these different descriptions, they can be confusing. They can be daunting. Good grief. Go to Joshua Project. Go to the IMB website, International Mission Board website. I would encourage you to download the app that the Joshua Projects offers. I'll, I'll reference it in a minute. And get one prompt every day to pray for one unreached people group. What a great tool that is. But it's, it's daunting if you, if you look at the big picture. These nations, ethnos there, it's, it's, you know, I think you could call it political divisions, if you will, or these are, these are, these are, these are, Nation states, they're under a unified government sometimes. Sometimes they're in national borders. Those are, those are nations. The tribe there, sometimes it's referred to in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament as clans. It's the tribes that we saw listed under Israel earlier in this passage of scripture. These, these are folks who have a common ascent, if you will, or descent from, from a common father and mother. There's a blood relationship here in some way, okay? They know who they are, and they know who they are. There's a difference, and those differences are seen in these tribes. Then there's people. There's all these people with all these cultural distinctions. And, and one, one commentator describes this as the way people dress, the way they cook, the way they build their homes, the way they set up their society that are different from one another. And those can be different within one county, right? I mean, they can be different 
in, in, in even when you're close to one another. And then there's the language. This is the specific way that a specific group of people communicates. I mean, we understand that. Wycliffe Bible Translators says on their website that there are at least 7,000 languages in the world. 7,000 spoken and sign languages in the world. And out of that number, 2,000 of those have no scripture in their language. 2,000. There's much to do, right? There is much to do. 1.5 billion people, Wycliffe tells us, still don't have the scriptures in their language. So there's these nations and tribes and people and language, and it can be daunting. It can be confusing. The Joshua Project puts it this way. A people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planning movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. And we've used this analogy before. Think of it not like a pancake, but like a waffle. If you're going to get syrup in each of those little squares, you have to put it there. Well, all these little squares, all these little divisions in the nations and among the tribes and among the ethnic groups, the gospel has to be planted there because there's no means for the gospel to cross over those little walls, to cross over those cultural barriers, to get through that linguistic challenge. So the point of this is that these barriers will be crossed, right? These barriers will be crossed. These bridges will be built. Out on the conference, out on the table in the, in the Welcome Center, I would encourage you to drop by there um, and pick up a couple of prayer guides that you're going to find out there. One of them is, is, is by AIM. It's the ministry that we partner through with the people in India through the Pinnell Gospel Ministry. Think about the country of India for just a minute. According to Joshua Project, there are 2,717 people groups in India. Okay? It's not 2,717 different ethnic groups, different cultural groups, different groups of people who are distinct from all the other groups. Out of that 2,717, 2,445 of them are classified as unreached. Unreached. That means that there's no means within those groups for the gospel to be self-propagating. It's an amazing challenge. Think about Afghanistan for just a second. There are 72 different distinct people groups, according to Joshua Project, in Afghanistan. 67 of those are unreached. The population of Afghanistan, according to Joshua Project, this morning when I looked, is 38,738,000. Unreached among that population is 38,722,000. Do the math. There's 16,000 known Christians in Afghanistan. Now, that number may not ring a bell with you, but I did a little math this morning. And if we take that same percentage of Christians to non-believers and apply it to our country... The population, according to what I read this morning, is 328 million in the United States. Apply the same math, how many Christians would there be? 135. 135 followers of Jesus in this country. So do you recognize how small a number that is? 
in many of these vast population centers where most of the people in the world are in what we call the 1040 window. And the vast majority of them have never heard the name of Jesus and will not unless they are told, unless someone goes. But someone will one day. Because one day, there will be people from every one of these 72 Afghan people groups. And there will be someone from these 2,717 people groups in India. There will be someone among them standing before the throne, singing to King Jesus. Amen? And I'll give you one point of application now that I'll touch on again in just a minute. This is great confidence for us, church, but it must not lead to complacency. It must not. There is much to do. God will have his representatives from all these thrones. Notice what it says next. There they are standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Later on, as John and the elder have this conversation and and, and the question comes, who are these? The answer is, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. God will save, and he will save completely. He will save completely. And, and what this, I think, points us to is the righteousness that is ours in Christ, that we stand before him clothed in his perfection, not our own. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And that's, that's what we see pictured here. There's a positional righteousness here, okay? They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. That has been given to them. It is a gift. We will see later on in Revelation. It is, it is the sign of them having been forgiven, have, having been redeemed, having been clothed in a righteousness, not their own, but one given to them. But there's also, I think, a personal Pursuit here, all right, because it says there later on, these are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white. So there's there's not only a positional righteousness that is ours when we trust Jesus, but there's a personal effort required. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? And this is that process of sanctification. I believe we could take that from there. I don't think it's a stretched. God will save completely. He will be faithful to finish what he started. And this is the finished work that we see here in Revelation 7. And God will be worshipped universally. Listen to the song. We, We sang the new song from Revelation 5. And here it's just an echo of that same song, that same phrase. It says that they are literally shouting this out. They're proclaiming salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And then it catches, all right? There's this concophony of worship going on. It's just kind of dispersing out. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fall on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Notice where they're standing. They're in the presence of God. We already saw the martyrs kind of below the throne there. But here they are in the very presence of God. They're with Him. They're with Him. 
And notice what they wear. Again, they're, they're clothed in the righteousness, this picture of God's holiness and his purity that is theirs. It's ours in Christ. What a beautiful picture that is of grace. And notice that they're holding these palm branches. Where do you remember that? All right. Well, we, we read, Jonathan read for us back when we had Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And there they're breaking off palm branches and laying them, out, laying them out before Christ as he rides that donkey in in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. It's a picture of celebration. It's a picture of victory. One of the things that happened culturally at that time, and, and later on when we get to it, I think this relates to the rapture as well. There's this picture of a conquering hero and his army returning from the battlefield. They've won. They have the prisoners. They have the spoils. They have all the booty with them. And the city goes out to meet them with palm branches and parades in with them, waving these palm branches as a sign of victory. That's what this is. They're waving these palm branches. We have won. Our king has won. The lamb has conquered. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And that's what they're doing. They're celebrating the victory that is theirs in Christ. And listen to what they say. First, there's an acknowledgement. Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation belongs to our God. And to the lamb. There's an acknowledgement. That this isn't ours. It's not mine. It was a gift. It's yours, O God. It is your salvation. David prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I I have heard myself and I've heard others when we pray that say, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. No, it's the joy of his salvation. It's a gift that he gives to us. And that's the picture that we have here. And all of heaven is involved in it. They're worshiping the God who saves. Now, later on in Revelation, they will worship the God who judges. And they'll be just as enthusiastic about that. That's one of the mysteries of Revelation that we receive by faith. We celebrate God for his justice and his judgment. And we celebrate our Lord for his righteous grace that saves us. Right. And that's the picture that we have here. There's an acknowledgement. God, this gift is yours to give to us. And the focus here, listen, is not only on what God has done. In fact, that's not the primarily focus, primarily the focus. It's on who he is. Look at the sevenfold blessing, the sevenfold worship song that they sing. All right. There's blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength. And those are the seven things that are a part of this stanza. Those are seven things that are being... There's, the blessing is, is the word where we get eulogy. Eulogia. They're, they're saying good things about God, okay, if you will. They're, 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 it's a word of praise to Him, like we hear sometimes at a funeral. So they're blessing God. They're giving glory to God, doxa. It's, it's the honor of someone's character. The glory, as we've seen throughout the Bible, is that... The, It's what stays behind when God comes along. It's his visible glory. It's his visible characteristics. It's his radiance that just shines out. It's what the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when the veil was taken away and Jesus glowed before their eyes. That's the glory of God coming out of the God-man. And they're giving that to him. There's wisdom. 
Sophia is the word in, in Greek. It's this God's divine knowledge in his perspective. And I think what, what the focus is here is the wisdom of the gospel. What Paul said is foolishness to men is God's wisdom on display, right? It makes no sense from a human perspective, and it is the beauty of God's wisdom. That's the gospel. And his thanks, the thanksgiving that they give, that's, that's where we get the word Eucharist. And, and they're giving thanks to God. They're giving honor to Him. There's public recognition that they're giving to Him. And they're talking about God's omnipotence, His power, His ability to do what He says He will do, His ability to do what He chooses to do, and His strength. His strength. Again, that word often refers to what God has done. Now, now here's the deal. How do we... Give God, who is all glorious, glory. How do we give God glory? How do we give the omnipotent God power? How do we give God, who is all wise and all knowing, how do we give to him wisdom? How do we give him strength? How do we give him honor? How do we bless the source of all blessings? Well, it's the same idea that we have when we think about how we magnify God. We don't make him any bigger than he is. But like through a, a microscope or, if you will, through a magnifying glass, in our own hearts, as we recount to God who he is, he gets bigger in our hearts. And he gets bigger in the eyes of people around us. When they hear us not talking about ourselves but talking about Him. When they hear us, not giving recognition to what we have done, but what He has done. And it's not that we're giving God something that He lacks. We're not adding to Him in any way. We're only acknowledging Him. That's what worship is like in heaven. And one of our applications in just a minute is going to, is going to be, and praise God that we, we work, Jonathan works to do that. I mean, that's what so far today's service has been. It's been a reflection, I believe, of the kind of worship that the Bible calls us to do. That's what we see here. We're making him bigger in our own hearts and bigger in the eyes of others. Notice what it says next. John and this elder have this little exchange here. <laughs> Who are these clothed in white robes? You know, sometimes questions come in Scripture not because God needs an answer, but because we need the answer. We need to think about that for a minute, okay? Adam and Eve, he's walking through the garden. Where are you? God had not lost them, <laughs> They weren't playing hide and seek. So here, who, who are these, John? And John said, what are you asking me for? You know, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, we're not going to wade into the deep weeds here about interpretation here. I, I just don't want to take the time to do that. The same ones who would hold to a fully futurist interpretation of Revelation see this particular verse and these particular words, if you will, as those who will come through the seven-year tribulation. And that's, that's exclusively who they see. This, this multitude that no one can number, the futurist would say, these are those who come through that seven-year tribulation. John MacArthur calls them tribulation saints. And that's the position that he holds. I do not agree with that. All right, now who am I to argue with John MacArthur? I know that, okay? I get that. But I think this is more of a picture of all of the church. I think this is a picture of all the redeemed standing before the throne. Other places where we see the term great tribulation used, 
Other than in Revelation, the only other place it's used, well, Daniel alludes to it in Daniel 12. But then in Matthew 24, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not have been seen from the beginning of the world until now. And no, never will be. And then he says in verse 22, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And Daniel 12:1 says, At that time there shall arise Michael, the great prince who has the charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But then Daniel says, But at that time your people shall be delivered. Amen. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So I think we see this clearly through Scripture, that we have been in a period of tribulation all the time from the time of Jesus. All right? Now, that being said, it will get much, much worse. There will be this great tribulation. But from the sufferings of Jesus, so too we suffer. And he calls us to walk that path with him. In fact, it says back in Revelation 1-9 that we identify with that. We are fellow partakers, it says, in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the perseverance. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this week. We were talking about... Just some difficulty that he had in his business, that he's had in his business, in his personal life, and it was just an amazing testimony he was sharing with me of just how God had answered prayer and an intercessor had come into his life praying for him. But one of the things that we discussed, just sitting there in that coffee shop, was that the call for believers to glory is the call through Calvary. We don't go around it. We don't get zapped out of it. We're not going to miss it. We go through it, as we'll see in just a second. And that picture that we have here of the saints coming through is this picture of those redeemed, wearing the robes of righteousness. Greg Beale puts it this way. The image of the saints with cleansed white robes in verse 9 and verse 14 and elsewhere in Revelation connotes a purity which has been demonstrated by the people's persevering faith in Christ's redemptive death. It's been tested by a purifying fire. They're standing in pure robes. Pure holiness. And they've been purged through this fire. They're standing holy. But they're also standing sheltered and shepherded. This is so beautiful. Look at verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. In verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. First off, there's this picture of being active in God's service and sheltered in God's presence. And I think those two go together. Now, the image here of this Old Testament priesthood serving in the temple day and night, that's good for us to get a starting place of what it means to serve, okay? Those who were standing before are the servants of God, and what does it mean to serve? And this idea of priesthood is one that I think is a beautiful picture, but I'm just telling you a struggle that I have in my mind. I'm not so sure I want to be in that building for the rest of eternity just doing stuff inside this heavenly temple. And the good news is that that's not what it is. That's not what it is. Because what we find in the scriptures is this promise. Listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 37. 
I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. There will be no temple in the new heavens, in the new earth, because Everything, everything will be in the presence of God. Everything will be under that glorious umbrella of God's presence and the glory of Jesus. And so this idea of serving, this idea of being a priest, this idea of of standing before him and serving him day and night in his temple, that temple is going to be the all-inclusive presence of God And we're going to be there serving him. We're going to be active before him. We're not going to be floating on clouds and playing harps. We're going to be serving. We're going to be worshiping. We're going to be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. All that God intended for us to do back in Genesis. And even more and better. It's it's incredible, church. It's a beautiful picture. Active in God. Active in his service and sheltered in his presence. That's the promise that he made to Israel. He said, you'll be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation. And what did Peter say? Remember what Peter said in in chapter 2? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Exclaiming exclaiming the excellencies of him who called you. That's, That's us. That's us. Okay, church, that's us. Active in his service and sheltered in his presence. Secondly, flourishing under his provision. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. It goes back to what we saw in the book of Isaiah. One of those prophecies, and there were several. Isaiah 49, 9 says, They shall feed along the ways. All the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. The 23rd Psalm should be echoing in our ears as we hear this prophecy of his care for us, his provision for us. And in verse 17, this beautiful concluding verse in this interlude chapter, the lamb is in the midst of the throne. So there the lamb who was slain is on the throne. He is God. He is God. He is on the throne. And he will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. I'm getting hungry. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. And that word for this covering that is cast over all peoples is, is is the pall that's laid over the casket. It's a flag for a military funeral or a blanket of flowers. That's, that's the word that this entails. He will swallow up the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So there's this contrast again. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered via the cross. He's the lamb who was slain. And those who stand with him are those who have taken up their crosses and followed him and by faith been cleansed of their sins in the blood and made pure and holy in the righteousness that is his. Wow. That's the church. 
That's you and me. That's who we are now, not just who we will be. Let me give you a couple of points of application. Four. I think I put these in the sermon notes. Thankfulness for the gift of salvation. I I said it a minute ago. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And whoever, by faith, comes to Jesus and allows him to wash you in that blood is cleansed. That's cleansing. That's salvation. Are you going to stand before the throne one day and sing praises to the Jesus who has saved you? Or listen to the saints praise God for his judgment upon you because you've refused this gracious offer of salvation? Please don't. Please don't. Come to Jesus and the free gift that he talks about. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23 says. That's what you earn for your sin. But the free gift, a gift is given from one to another. A gift is the possession of one to another. And God's salvation is given as a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Receive that gift. Be thankful for that. Number two, worship now the way we will then. And I would add pray now according to this pattern. And what I mean by that is Revelation 5, Revelation 7, and other passages through this, I think, teach us how to worship. They teach us how to pray. We focus not on what God does for us, as awesome as that is. But first we focus on who He is. His wisdom and His might and His power and His glory. His strength. We focus on His holiness. We focus on His grace. So we worship with our eyes fixed on the throne. And we focus on Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection, the glory of the gospel in the Lamb who was slain and is now on the throne. Simply pray Scripture. Pray through Revelation 7. Use it as a model for how you pray kingdom-focused prayers. Which leads me to the third point. Confidence and faithfulness in the global mission. I mentioned confidence can lead us to complacency, but complacency will not be a problem for the one who is walking with Christ. Intent to serve Him and fixed on His mission. And that's the calling that He's given us. With full authority, Jesus commanded us to go. And with confidence, He tells us before we do, the job will be done. It will get done. Now, I will add there that Matthew said that Jesus said in Matthew 24, and this is this is to me a a real important point when I think about the return of Jesus. Because Jesus said the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. As a testimony to all nations, ethne, and then the end will come. There is work to do before he comes back. And he has commissioned us and called us to go be a part of that. And we often say, pray, give, and go, right? I mean, we we say that sometimes so quickly that we lose focus of it. But we are called to pray. God, do what you have said you're going to do. We're praying for these unreached people groups. We give. We give missions. We give to missions offerings. We do that in December. We do it throughout the year. We do it around Easter for local missions and disaster relief. We go. Well, we haven't much but lately, but we're going to, okay? 
We're going to go back to going. And we we teach. We teach parents. Are you teaching your children to have a heart for the nations? The way your Lord has a heart for the nations. Do they see you praying for unreached people groups, talking about missions? Do you read them stories about Adoniram Johnson and J.O. Frazier and Jim Elliott and Nate Saint? Do you read stories about mission heroes to your children? Would we dare pray that God might call our children to go and fulfill this great commission? What about the way we receive those that he sends to us? You know what's lacking in the church right now? A kingdom perspective on immigration. We are so politically focused on the issue of immigration that I fear we're missing the kingdom opportunities that God wants to bring to our doorstep. One of the things that's out there on that table, and I don't know how many copies there are, there's a little booklet out there published by our North Carolina Baptist State Convention. Chris Schofield actually wrote this. And in this little book is, is Pray Go, Pray Together, Go Together. And it's praying for the least reached and unreached people groups in North Carolina. And, and what you'll find out in this, as you read through this, is that there are in our state 165 people groups. 165 people groups that are distinct from one another that come from nations that have these unreached people groups in them. So the old, the old adage that we've got to get on a plane and go someplace to reach the nations is just not the case anymore. And God in his providence and in his purposes brings these people from the nations in. And with a kingdom perspective, we see it as opportunities to expand the kingdom. Don't let politics drive your immigration. Allow the kingdom view that the scriptures give us. Promote that. Yes, there has to be laws. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that let's be kingdom people when we see other people. And finally, fourthly, just peace for today under the care of our shepherd. What I mean by that, Revelation 22:17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That's not a then. That's not saying that we have to wait till then to drink from the water of life. It's a now, right? It's a now. And saints are called. We're called through Christ. To, <laughs> Jesus said in John 4, whoever drinks this water I give to him will be thirsty again. Talking about coming out of the well. But the water I give him will spring up like he says, water to eternal life from the inside. Be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The blessings that Christ gives us will be fulfilled then, but they're not just, un, just for then. They're now. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly, Jim read us out of John 10. He is our good shepherd now, right? Now. And the peace that we are promised then should anchor our souls now. So I want us to close this morning a little bit differently. Take your copy of the Word. If you don't have a copy, get the pew Bible in front of you and turn to Psalm 23. And it's going to take us just a minute, but I think, this is, I think this is going to be edifying to us and helpful to us. 
and it will be glorifying to God as his people pray. Everybody got Psalm 23? Here's what I want you to do quietly and to yourself. Just to yourself. I want you to read that psalm in, as, you, as you read it to yourself quietly in the form of a prayer. And I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to do that. So you understand what I'm saying? Lord, thank you that you're my shepherd. And I, and I, don't, have to, I don't have to be wanting something else. Thank you that you make me lie. I read it that way. Read through it in the form of a prayer. Put your name in there for those personal pronouns if you, if you need to. But let's, let's do that right now. Lord, hear your people as we pray this. Holy God, we thank you today for your word in Psalm 23. Jesus, we thank you for your word in John 10 where you tell us that you are the good shepherd. Lord, we hear Psalm 23 read at most every funeral that we ever go to, but this is a promise for your children. This is not for everybody. Thank you, Lord, that for those who are in Christ, you are our shepherd. And we don't have to look and hunger and desire the things that are around us. In Christ, we have all we need or shall not want. Thank you, Lord, that you lead us You provide for us the flourishing that comes in green pastures, Lord, the peace that comes beside still waters. Thank you that you restore our soul, Lord. You restore it daily, hourly, minute by minute sometimes. Thank you that you restore. Thank you that you lead us, Lord. You lead us in the right path, paths of righteousness, and you do it for your glory, Lord, for your namesake. Lord, thank you that even when that path of righteousness goes through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to be afraid. Because you have swallowed up death. You have taken away the pall that covers the casket of humanity. And we don't have to be afraid because you are with us. Thank you for your provision, God. Your spiritual provision that gives us confidence even in the face of our enemies. Lord, the feast that is ours, even if the world would want to starve us. In the presence of our enemies, God, we are taken care of, and you do it well. Thank you, Lord, that you have anointed us. We belong to you. That joy pours over us, Lord. You are more than enough. Our cup overflows. Thank you, God, that because we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from your love and goodness and mercy will follow us here. And Lord, when here is over, we will dwell with you where you are. And one day, Lord, you will be here again in all your fullness, in a new heavens and a new earth. And we can't wait. But while we wait, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit be faithful. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.